Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Steve wasn't there. Where was Steve? Jesse. Where was Jesse? Behind. He was behind the blue vehicle truck stop. Did you not see Jesse? Right, how many men were there besides the not Captain Jesse? Do you know who they were? Only about two men. Right, who were they? Damien and Jason. Damien and Jason? Okay. Uh, well, tell me what happened when you got there. I got there with Michael and Chris. They um, they had a gun and they jumped out and pointed the gun at them. Who did they point the gun at? The four men. Okay, then what happened? They all um, they killed them. Who killed them? Jason and um, Damien. Okay, can you tell? Can you tell me what happened? How they did it? Last week, I introduced you to a woman named Victoria Hutchison. Vicki testified at Jesse Miss Kelly's trial, where she told the jury that she had, quote, played detective and got Jesse to introduce her to Damien Eccles. I'm sure many of you noticed, and we discussed already the troubling facts in Victoria's testimony in the Friday follow-up. Just to name a few, she would have us to believe that Damien drove her to the, quote, S-Bat in a red Ford Escort. Of course, we know that Damien didn't have a driver's license and had never driven a car, and in no way was he associated with any red Ford Escort. And then, secondly, we have the fact that Vicky used the word S-Bat on the stand. She said this was a satanic-slash-witchcraft occult meeting that Damien took her to. Unfortunately for her, she exposed her hand when admitting the fact that she had to look up the term in the satanic books that Marion Police Chief Don Bray had so kindly assisted her in checking out. As mentioned in the Friday follow-up, had Damien actually taken her to such a meeting and referred to it as an SBAT, then her answer would have simply described the meeting that she, in fact, attended. There would be no need to look up the definition. SBAT was obviously a word placed into her mind by someone who was helping her to craft this narrative. The version of Victoria's story that you heard last week was the finale of a twisted story that began on May 6th while the boys were still missing. 
Vicky was in Don Bray's office regarding a credit card fraud charge that she had been accused of. The prosecution was sure to point out on the stand that the charges had been dropped in the case. But what they didn't mention is the fact that after the investigation, Vicky was in fact fired from her job. Her employer found the investigation to have provided sufficient evidence to fire her with cause, while the prosecutor's office decided to let her off the hook. It's been said that during the course of Vicky's interview with Don Bray, she offered up her eight-year-old son Aaron as having information about the murders. The boy's bodies had actually been found while she was at the Marion Police Department. I say that it's been said because I have not found any documents concerning Victoria Hutchison's interview with Bray on May the 6th. The closest thing that I have to a source on the subject is Marl Leverett's book, The Devil's Knot. The first entry that I found in the case files regarding Vicki and Aaron Hutchison is a police note written by West Memphis Police Department Officer Hester on May the 10th. The note reads as follows. Aaron Hutchison states that after school on Wednesday, he saw a black male in a maroon car stop and tell Michael that his mother told him to pick him up and take him home. States that he saw Michael get into the car and they left traveling west on East Barton. States that he was a black male and his head almost touched the top of the roof. He had yellow teeth. He was wearing a t-shirt with some writing on it. Eight-year-old Aaron would play a big part in the West Memphis Police Department building their case against Damien, Jesse, and Jason over the next several months. In fact, by the time of the trials, he had recorded seven interviews with investigators. After all of that, he never did end up testifying at trial. By the time we finish today, it will become painfully obvious why. But that didn't mean that little Aaron didn't help play a role in the final outcome. Let's begin with Aaron's first recorded statement on May the 27th of 1993. And before we begin breaking down the statement, keep in the back of your mind that 17 days earlier, he had told police that he had seen a black man with yellow teeth pick Michael up after school in a maroon van. May 27th began with Detective Brian Ridge interviewing Vicki Hutchison. During the interview, she relayed much of the same information that you heard her testify to in court in last week's episode. She also described the day that Michael, Stevie, and Christopher went missing. She told Detective Ridge that she had picked Aaron up from school that day, and he had asked her to stay and play with Michael and Christopher, not Stevie. She says that he had told her that they had some things to do regarding the Cub Scouts. Vicki told Ridge that she knew that he actually just wanted to stay and play. In the police notes from this interview, it states that Vicky did, in fact, pick Aaron up and take him home with her. In later statements, she goes into detail about how Aaron never left her side that afternoon or evening, even describing a trip to the grocery store with Aaron later that night. This is all important, number one, because it lays important groundwork for the statements to come over the next several months. And number two, it appears that the black man with the yellow teeth and the maroon van has already faded from the narrative. While Victoria's interview wasn't recorded, Aaron's May 27th interview was. And it was a short two-second clip from this recording that had a profound effect on the outcome of the investigation. During the course of the interview, Aaron said the words, quote, Nobody knows what happened but me. According to Jesse Miss Kelly, this segment of the interview was played for him in order to elicit a confession on June 3rd. Gary Gitchell also played this segment of the tape on the stand during Jesse's trial. This is the voice that John Fogelman was talking about when Victoria Hutchison was on the stand, and he said that you heard that voice earlier. 
While the words have the effect of sending shivers down the spine of anyone hearing them, they were in fact taken wildly out of context. This is what Aaron actually said on May 27th, from the transcript. Ridge. Okay, okay, I understand now. Alright, since this thing happened and Chris and Michael were killed, okay, have you talked to any of your little friends that might know what happened? Aaron. Nobody knows what happened but me out of all of my friends. Ridge. But you know what happened? Aaron, inaudible. Ridge, tell me what you think happened. It's clear from the full transcript that Aaron isn't saying that he actually knows what happened. He was just telling Detective Ridge that he thinks he knows what happened, and that he knows more than any of his friends. Taken in context, the statement really doesn't mean much at all although it's pretty clear that it was no accident for Gitchell to have played that one line during the trial. In that police file, that one line of the interview is highlighted and starred in the transcript. Aaron's interview here is pretty confusing, but let's start at the beginning and work our way through it. He begins by telling Rids that on May 5th, after school, Michael and Christopher ran up to his mom's car and asked if he could go play with them. He doesn't say if she allowed him to stay. Instead, he starts to talk about a clubhouse that the boys used to play in in the woods past the stop sign. Aaron goes on to say that on several occasions, he, Christopher, and Michael would play in their treehouse and watch a group of men doing what he calls, quote, nasty stuff. He says that the trio would oftentimes watch the group, quote, do what men and women do. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Aaron says that the men were around his mother's age. And for reference sake, Vicki Hutchison was 30 years old at the time. I'll read the more descriptive parts directly from the transcript. The following segment is very disturbing. From the transcript. Ridge. Okay, uh, you're saying they're doing things like man and woman would be doing. Aaron. Yes. Ridge. When I say having sex, is that what you're describing? Aaron. Yes, sir. Ridge. Okay, how would they have sex? Aaron. They would, um, they would wipe each other like, um, like, um, like they did to Michael, Christopher, and Stevie, they said. Now Gitchell jumps in. Were they in front of each other or behind each other? Aaron, in front of each other. Ridge, okay, when they were having sex, was it having sex in the front or having sex in the back? Aaron, in the front. Ridge, were their mouths, were they having sex with their mouths? Aaron, yes, sir. Ridge, they were, okay, all right, when's the last time you saw that happen? Aaron, the day before we moved, which is, uh, which was about a month ago. 
The Hutchisons moved out of the boys' neighborhood on April 19th, just over two weeks before the murders occurred. In this version of the story, Aaron hadn't seen the strange men participating in the, quote, nasty stuff since that time. In fact, later in the interview, Aaron says that he never returned to the woods again after he moved out of the neighborhood. Gitchell piped in during the interview to ask Aaron if he and the other boys ever swam in the water. Aaron replied that they never got close to the water. He further explains the process of entering the woods via the pipe bridge. He says that when they would go into the Blue Beacon Woods, they would always leave their bikes on the neighborhood side of the bayou and walk across the pipe. They would never carry their bikes across it. But then after that exchange, things take a bit of a twist. Aaron tells the officers that they had never seen anyone on the Blue Beacon side of the pipe. The fort that he was referring to was actually on the south side of the bayou in Robin Hood. He says that when they would cross the pipe, they liked to watch the big rigs go into the Blue Beacon to wash their trucks. Aaron then goes on to explain Stevie's absence from the stories. He said that they never told Stevie about the five men who were doing the nasty stuff in the woods. Stevie only went with them to their fort one time, and it was on a Friday. And according to Aaron, the men were never out there on Fridays. It's at this point when Rich asked if his, quote, little friends knew what happened to Stevie, Michael, and Christopher, and Aaron replies, nobody knows what happened but me. And the rest of the sentence was left out of the playback at Jesse's trial. Out of all of my friends. Aaron continues on to say that he thinks that the boys had probably gone to the clubhouse to watch the men on the afternoon that they were killed. He further states that his mother didn't let him go with. At this point, the detectives go back to asking Aaron about what he had seen the strange men doing when he, Michael, and Christopher had watched them in the past. Aaron says that he saw the men rolling up a, quote, different kind of tobacco that stunk and they smoked it. The men all dressed in black except one who wore white. Next, I'll read you a very gross example of the detectives using the power of suggestion to get a story out of this eight-year-old child. Remember that according to Jerry Driver, there were all kinds of animal sacrifices taking place in West Memphis. I'll read this segment to you directly from the transcript. Pay close attention to what information actually comes from Aaron and what info is first suggested by the officers. This from the transcript. The detectives had just asked if there were any animals out there. Aaron. All there was is one dog. It looked kind of like a canine dog. Ridge, okay. Aaron, because it had a long mouth and it tall, a long mouth sticking out and a kind of little nose and it was, um, it was kind of big and brown. Ridge, okay, who had that dog? Aaron, all, I think it was all men because they was mean to he. They just, um, pushed him around one by one. Ridge, pushed him around? How did they push it? Aaron. They, one guy had him and they pushed it to the other and Ridge. What would they push him with? Aaron. They would push him with his hands. Ridge. Okay. Now Gitchell jumps in. How were they pushing the dog like? Aaron. Like that. Ridge. What did they end up doing to the dog? Aaron. Nothing. They just being mean to it. Ridge. Okay. Aaron. They teased it like they were going to whip it. Ridge. Okay, how about some cats? Were there some cats out there? Now, as a side note here, remember that just a few seconds ago, Aaron had said the only animal out there was this one dog. Back to the transcript. Aaron. Yeah, they caught cat. They cut his head off and ate it. Ridge. They did what? Aaron. Ate a cat. 
Ridge. Goodness, did they eat his head or did they eat the whole cat? Aaron. They ate the whole cat but his head. Ridge. Everything but his head? Gitchell. Did they cook him first? Another aside. Pay attention to the power of suggestion. We've gone from there only being one dog to now there's a cat. And then Ridge suggests, did they cook him first? Aaron's response. They cooked him first. Cut off his head and then they cooked him and then they ate him. Ridge. What did they do with his head? Did they keep it? Aaron. I think they kept it. Ridge. Oh. Aaron. Or threw it away. Because one of the men threw it. Ridge. Do you know which one actually killed the cat? Was it the one that had the necklace on? Aaron. Yes, the one that had the necklace on. They continue to go on about the cat and knives that were used to kill it. But let's stop here and talk about the man with the necklace for a second. In Vicky's interview with Ridge, she said that Damien had left a necklace at her house. And that when Aaron returned from a trip, he saw the necklace and told her that one of the men that were doing the nasty stuff in the woods was wearing the same necklace. Ridge then asked Aaron about it. Aaron says that one of the men that he referred to as the, quote, skull commander was wearing a necklace. He said that the pendant contained a skull with a snake tongue coming out of the eye. Now, to begin with, there's some red flags here. In Aaron's story, the boys are away from the men hiding in a treehouse. They never got close enough to the men to get caught, yet he is describing a small necklace in intimate detail. And while we're talking about inconsistencies, after the interview, police took Aaron out to the place where he said the activities occurred and there was no treehouse. Ridge wrote in his report that the, quote, tree stand was gone. Then when reviewing this segment of the transcript, we also come across some trickery on Ridge's part that will play a bigger role in the coming weeks. At the beginning of the interview, Aaron describes the people doing the, quote, nasty stuff as men in their 20s, quote, like his mom, who's 30. About 10 pages into the transcript, Ridge says the following, quote, How about those five boys? Did you ever see those five boys on that side? He's talking about the Blue Beacon Woods here. Now, this may seem insignificant, but it's a tactic worth taking note of. Ridge is interviewing an eight-year-old boy and has just changed his own narrative for him. It's a subtle shift from five men, as Aaron repeatedly had described to them, to five boys. As an interviewer, Ridge has just let Aaron know the response that he's looking for. The response that fits his suspects. Getting back to the necklace, the detectives show Aaron a picture of a medallion, and he confirms that it is the same medallion that he saw on the man out in the woods. Gitchell then shows Aaron a picture of the necklace that the medallion was attached to, and Aaron says that it was not that necklace. When we back up to the beginning of this exchange, Ridge first asked Aaron if he had ever seen that, quote, emblem like that before. Aaron's response, no, sir. Ridge asks him again, never saw it before? Aaron then changes his answer. My mom's got it. As the interview goes on, the detectives try to get a better idea of how far away Aaron was from the men. Aaron says that he was five feet away, and he knows it was five feet because his brother is five feet tall, and he knows what five feet is. Ridson asks him for a distance marker in the room, and Aaron says he was as far as Marion Police Chief Don Bray was from the door. This is the first that we hear that Bray was present during the interview. Ridge says that Bray is about 15 feet from the door. Ridge then shows Aaron a lineup and asks him if he could identify any of the, 
Again here, Ridge uses the word boys from the woods. Presumably, Damien, at the very least, was in the lineup. Aaron says that it was none of them and that he had told Don Bray the day before who was there. We have no record of this interview with Bray and no idea who it was that Aaron identified. Gitchell then asks Aaron if the people in the woods had, quote, painted their faces up. Aaron says that they had black paint on their faces and fingers. He says that they used that, quote, paint that never comes off. Then comes another great example of the power of suggestion to an adolescent. After Aaron said that it was paint, we read the following exchange. Gitchell. Okay, did you see what they what they had to put this stuff on? Aaron. Right, um, that paint that never comes off. Gitchell. Um, do you know what shoe polish is? Aaron. Uh-huh. Gitchell. Do you know what it looks like? Aaron. Uh-huh. Ridge. Do you think that's what they used? Aaron. Yeah, could have a big old bottle, a big old thing. Ridge. A big bottle. Okay. Some of these details may seem minor, but these interview tactics of minors are very important to understand. I would highly recommend reading the entire May 27th interview and take note of how many times the detective suggests something, like a particular word, and Aaron goes right along with it, in most cases repeating the exact words that the detectives had just said to him. This is very common when interviewing children, and that's why interviewers are trained to only ask open-ended questions. The suggestibility factor in juveniles is massive. They desire to please authority. An interview is almost like a game in their mind. Figure out what they want me to say and say it. In Aaron's case, in this interview, there's nothing particularly damning that transpires from the use of the power of suggestion as a tactic. But the more important thing that we are learning here is that either Ridge and Gitchell are completely incompetent in interviewing witnesses, especially juvenile witnesses, or they are knowingly and intentionally trying to force their own narratives onto the witness. Right after this exchange, Aaron tells the officers that the men had a bag full of stuff. Listen to this bit from the transcript. Aaron, because they did have a bag with them. Ridge, what kind of bag? Aaron, a bag that, um, carries stuff. Ridge, okay, what color was the bag? Was it cloth or was it like a briefcase? Aaron, it was a briefcase. At this point in the interview, Aaron is going along with literally every single suggestion that the police make to him. I won't continue citing examples, but please take the time to read this transcript. You'll really be disgusted when you read Ridge manipulating Aaron into describing the men having anal sex. Let's not forget that when Aaron actually described it on his own, the men were face to face. The interview concludes with Aaron telling Ridge that the man that was wearing the skull necklace had a very large spider web tattoo on his shoulder. The interview was ended and the group made a trip out to the woods. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. <laughs> 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Aaron Hutchison was interviewed again by Detective Ridge on June 2nd. This was the day before Jesse Miss Kelly was brought in for questioning. Aaron's story had changed a lot in the six days since his first interview, and even more so from his original statement on May 10th, where he told police that Michael was picked up after school by a black man with yellow teeth driving a maroon van. In this new and improved version, Aaron starts off by changing the location where the boys hid their bikes when they crossed the pipe. In his first interview, he said that they would just lay the bikes down right next to the pipe on the south side of the bayou. Now he says that they hid the bikes in the woods by their tree fort. Ridge then suggests that maybe they took their bikes across the pipe with them. Aaron complies and says, yes, sir. A direct conflict with his previous statement where he said that they never took the bikes across the pipe. Also in this version, he now adds Stevie to the narrative. Originally, Aaron said that Michael was picked up by the man in the van. Then on May 27th, he said that Michael and Christopher asked his mom if he could go play with them after school, and she said no. Now in this version, Michael, Christopher and Stevie asked his mom if he could go play. Again, he says that his mom said no, but the glaring issue was the addition of Stevie. Remember, Stevie's mom had picked him up early from school that day. He wasn't at the school when the bell rang and the students left. He was already home with his mother by then. Aaron then goes on to say that he saw Jesse Miss Kelly on the afternoon of the murders. He says that Jesse was hiding from a cop by Aaron's house. Aaron says here that Jesse told him that he had seen Michael that day. Then, on page 19 of the transcript, Ridge starts asking about Damien Eccles. Ridge, do you know anybody named Damien? Aaron, Damien? Ridge, you know somebody named Damien. Who do you know named Damien? As another aside here regarding the interrogation tactics... What Ridge just did was eliminate the option for Aaron to say that he doesn't know anyone named Damien. He first says, quote, Do you know someone named Damien? Then quickly rephrases the question to eliminate that option. Quote, Who do you know named Damien? The question is no longer if Aaron knows someone. Now it's who do you know named Damien? Aaron replies that Damien is Bubba's friend. When asked what Damien looks like, Aaron replies, I never knew him, but Jesse, Jesse, um, shown me him and didn't get real close to him to see him. So here Aaron complies with Ridge and says that he does know someone named Damien, but he won't guess at what Damien looks like. I can just about guarantee you that if Ridge had said, does Damien have black hair? Aaron would have responded, yes, it was black hair. In this interview, Aaron now says that they had ran into one of the men from the woods at the flash market, and he said, quote, Hi, fellows, wasn't you guys watching us? 
The man was supposedly driving a red convertible with the top down. This, of course, is in direct contrast with his previous statement that the men had never caught them watching them. But as Aaron goes on, he reiterates in this statement that he doesn't know what actually happened, but he thinks that he knows. He tells Ridge that he thinks that the five men caught the boys watching them and killed them. A little further into the transcript, he explains to Ridge that he had been told that Stevie, Michael, and Christopher had been, quote, they got raped and they got beaten to death and they got drowned. Then they hogtied them and put bricks on them so they won't float, end quote. I would like to add here that I think it is tragic and disgusting that an eight-year-old boy is being put through this. He obviously has no idea what actually happened, and these officers knew that. All he's doing is simply building a narrative off of what his mother and the officers are feeding him. The fact that this poor boy even knows what the word raped means is sickening. His entire narrative of the black-faced orgies that he watched is nothing more than a retelling of the story that his mother told the investigators after she, quote, played detective. Aaron was used as a pawn, and interviews with him years after the fact made it clear that he was severely psychologically damaged by this entire experience. Ridge continues with this gross line of questioning by having Aaron explain, again, what specific sex acts he had witnessed. The police were working on a theory that the boys had been forced to perform oral sex. Ridge needed Aaron to say that he witnessed this. From the transcript, Ridge, would he stick his pee-pee somewhere? Do you know what your pee-pee is? Aaron, uh-huh. Ridge, okay. Do you know what a penis is? Do you know what a penis is? Explain to me what a penis is. Aaron, it's what men have. Ridge, Okay, and they would take their penis, what would they do with it? Aaron, they would put it in somebody's bottom. Ridge, oh, they would? Okay. Did they ever put it in their mouth? Aaron, uh-uh, no. Keep in mind here that Ridge is forcing this child to answer these gross, specific sexual questions about five men that had supposedly been in the woods weeks before the murders. There is just no reason for this, especially when you consider the fact that there is no evidence that Stevie, Michael, and Christopher were even sexually assaulted. Ridge ends the interview by making sure that Aaron still has plenty of coke and telling him that he's going to show him some more pictures. On June 3rd, Jesse Kelly spent the entire day being questioned about the murders in the West Memphis Police Department. He submitted to a polygraph, which, according to expert Warren Holmes, he actually passed, although Durham and Ridge told Jesse that he had failed the test. The investigators also played the short segment of Aaron Hutchison's first interview where he said, quote, Nobody knows what happened but me. After spending hours in the police station, the detectives finally turned on a tape recorder. And Jesse confessed that he, Damian Eccles, and Jason Baldwin had murdered the three little boys. The very next day, Aaron Hutchison was brought back in to record another interview. This time, he was interviewed not in West Memphis, but rather at the Marion Police Department by, you guessed it, Chief Don Bray. This time, Aaron had a very different story to tell. The 
interview begins with Aaron telling Bray that on the afternoon of the murders, he had went home with his mother, but then got on his bike and rode back to West Memphis. Of course, prior to this, he has repeatedly stated that not only was he not with the boys on the day of the murders, but also he said that he didn't actually own a bike. Aaron then says, well, it's confusing, so I'll read to you from the transcript. Listen closely here again to the abuse of suggestive influence that Bray uses on Aaron. He's telling him what to say as he's saying it. Aaron, because I had to do my homework, and then I got down there, I seen Michael and Chris, and I seen, I seen there were supposed to be five, but I seen four, and Jesse Miss Kelly was one of them that, uh, that said that he was, uh, he was the one that killed Michael, Chris, and Stevie. And I, uh, Bray. Okay, let me ask you. When you got there, you only seen four, but one was missing, and that was Jesse? Aaron. Miss Kelly. Bray. Where was Jesse? Aaron. He was somewhere around, uh, down in the water somewhere. Bray. What was he doing? Aaron. He seen Stevie coming out from that little hole. That's where we come from. A shortcut. Bray. Through that pipe? He was after Stevie? And what did he do? Chase him down? Aaron. He chased him down. He caught him and then, uh, he, he put his face in the water for about five seconds and pulled it out. And he said, I don't want to kill you yet until what my boss says. Bray. He said, I don't want to kill you yet until my boss tells me to. Is that what he was saying? Who was his boss? It was, uh, I think it was Damien. Bray. Okay, go ahead and tell me about Jesse. What happened? Aaron. Jesse, uh, put him in the water and took him out and said, that's what I just said. He went to his boss and he said that you need to kill him because we already killed the other two. Bray. He told him that. Okay. Did you see him kill the other two? Aaron. Yes, sir. So Aaron starts by saying that Jesse killed the three boys, then says that Jesse was missing. Then Jesse started to drown Stevie, but stopped until Damien, who in a previous interview, Aaron says that he doesn't even know what he looks like told Jesse to kill Stevie because he had already killed the other two boys. Then Aaron says that he witnessed all three boys being murdered. He explained the murders as follows. Michael and Christopher found two guns on the pipe. They decided to point the guns at the men in the woods. Michael pulled the trigger, but the gun wasn't loaded. Chris didn't point his gun because it wasn't loaded either, and Stevie was off somewhere with Jesse Miss Kelly. Then, Damien grabbed Michael and slit his throat with a knife. Aaron describes in detail all the blood running down his shirt. He then says that after his throat was slit, that Damien raped Michael. Next, Aaron says that he ran away and Jesse Miss Kelly ran after him. Aaron trips him and gets away. Bray then asks Aaron where Chris was at this time, and he says that Jesse was holding him in the water. I think you're getting the point without me going through every single detail of this statement. The story is completely nonsensical, and it only gets more confusing from here. The nuts and bolts of this version of the story are that Aaron witnessed Jesse and Damien slitting the throats of the boys and raping them after their throats were slit. In this version also, Damien and Jesse are just two of five men killing the boys, and Jason Baldwin isn't mentioned at all although the story does change rapidly as the interview moves along. Every time Bray makes a suggestion, little Aaron adjusts his story. 
Four days later, Bray took another crack at getting the story that he was looking for out of Aaron. At this point, I would like to feed Don Bray his teeth. This poor eight-year-old child was repeatedly manipulated and used as a pawn, with the adults who were charged with protecting him having zero concern for his emotional and mental well-being. In this version of the story, Jesse contacts Aaron on the day before the murders and tells him that, quote, something is going to happen with Stevie, Michael, and Christopher. Jesse tells Aaron on Tuesday to get his friends and meet him and his friends in Robin Hood after school. And in this interview, he names Jesse, Damien, and Jason as the murderers. And again, he says that he witnessed the boys being killed. You can read the transcripts to get all these gory details that Aaron was manipulated into giving Bray, I cannot continue on reading the very grown-up words coming out of a boy just a few months older than my son. It's just heartbreaking. If any of you at this point believe any of these stories that Aaron is telling, then there's not much more I can do for you. The boy was obviously taken advantage of. He gave at least three more interviews after this one, with his story changing in every single one of them. The purpose in walking you through Aaron's statements today was not by any means to attack his credibility. He was an eight-year-old boy. All he was trying to do was please the grown-ups who he trusted. The purpose was to give you some insight into the conduct of both Don Bray and the West Memphis Police Department. While Bray was certainly leading the charge, Brian Ridge, Gary Gitchell, and even District Attorney John Fogelman participated in the manipulation of this child. Ridge, Bray, and Fogelman interviewed him for two hours in December, trying to get his story straight so that they could use him to testify at trial. At the end of the day, Aaron was never called to testify. His mother, Vicky, on the other hand, did testify, as you heard last week. I want to end today's show with a short audio clip from the documentary West of Memphis. Here's Vicki Hutchison explaining what happened over a decade later. The voices that you're about to hear are Jesse Miss Kelly's defense attorney, Dan Stidham, Jerry Driver, and of course, Vicki Hutchison. Police say Satanists in our area often conduct their rituals in remote wooded areas. At some point, did, did Damien invite you to some meeting? He did. And the West Memphis police didn't seem interested in corroborating anything. They just took everything at face value. A cult satanic meeting. Okay. I got a phone call from a lawyer in Fayetteville who had Vicki Hutchison sitting at her desk. Victoria, would you raise your right hand, please? Said she's ready to recant her trial testimony. How fast can you get here? She obviously asked for immunity from the state, uh, which they refused to, to grant. So here's the state of Arkansas at the Rule 37 hearings, still stonewalling, still refusing to let the truth shine on this case. Damien and I stood back, and then these kids took their clothes off, and I looked at Damien, I said, I want to leave. I testified to it, but I lied on the stand. It was frightening to listen to her tell the truth, the truth that I knew had existed all these years, the truth that she wouldn't come out and and say because she was afraid of what would happen to her. You mentioned that you went and met Jerry Driver at the Marion Police Department. I'm I'm trying to remember. I I know who she is. It's just kind of 
back in my mind somewhere. What did they ask you to do? Do I think, they asked me, do I think I could get um, Jesse to introduce me to Damien? All we asked her was, was to go in and, and uh, see what she could find out. And that was, that was with police department's knowledge and consent. He's the one that suggested, well, if you're going to have Damien over, you need to have demon books on your, on your uh, coffee table. The only thing she was coached to do was to not get caught. Because we were, we were actually afraid that if she got caught, he'd kill her. Damien looks down at those um, demon book things. And I said, why are you so nervous? And he said, well, you'd be nervous too if, you thought, if they thought you killed three little kids. I said, why would they think you of all people? And he goes, I'm, because I'm weird, I guess, you know? And I was like, I like, well, did you kill him? He said, well, no, I wouldn't do something like that. Like, I was stupid. And he was just like any other kid his age, you know? He was just a normal kid. Any other contact with Damien? Not at all. Okay. It was, I was just a big liar. And I really was just a big liar. Throughout this episode, you've heard firsthand some pretty terrible interrogation and interview techniques, and I barely scratched the surface. If you really want to study how these detectives manipulated witnesses, go to Callahan's and read all of these transcripts, and pay attention to details. Look for changes of the story that came after a suggestion by the interviewer. In the meantime, we're about to launch into our discussion of the single most damning piece of evidence against the so-called West Memphis Three, the confession of Jesse Miss Kelly. Before we listen to Jesse's interview, I first want to invite in an expert that we've never heard from before. He is not familiar with this case in any way, Rather, he has spent his entire life working for several different three-letter agencies, and he is an expert in interview and interrogation tactics. The man that I'm referring to is Mr. Tim Clementi. Next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com designed and created our Season 5 logo. A special thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. And also a big thank you to our transcription team, Sarah Mueller, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Stephanie McConnell. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month and we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation in the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.